Amen. We could probably be done now. That was awesome. <laughs> um, go ahead and pull out your Bibles. We'll be in the book of Mark, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you and you want one that has pages, uh, there's Bibles in the backs of the pews. We're on page 844. Be careful, many of those books are in German. Um, so it's the black bound Bibles. Okay, you've just purchased a $4 bottle of water and a $6 chocolate chip cookie. The lights just flashed. Intermission is over. It's time to get back to your seats. Welcome back. If, the, if this book of the Bible were in Acts, we are now entering Act 2. We're kicking off a new series today. It's called Discipleship. Following Jesus to the cross. And today we're going to cover the disciple and growth. This nine-week series, so we'll be in this for a couple months, it'll take us through two and a half chapters of Mark, from chapter 8, verse 22, all the way through chapter 10. And we, along with the disciples, get to have a nine-week intensive from Jesus about what it means to follow him in our everyday life. This entire two-and-a-half-chapter section that makes up this series is one of those, as we've mentioned before, one of those Markin sandwiches, which basically just means that Mark intentionally sandwiches two stories and then puts things in the middle to make more intense, more culminative points. And so with this one, it opens in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, with the healing of a blind man. And then in chapter 10, the chapter closes with another healing of another blind man. And then in between these blind man bread slices, we have the meat, the cheese, the veggies. There are three predictions by Jesus of his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. And then each of these predictions are followed by three total misunderstandings of what he's even talking about by the disciples. And then Jesus, as he always does, perfectly utilizes these misunderstandings to instruct them in how this suffering, how his death, how his resurrection changes everything as far as how they are going to then carry out his mission. So sandwiched between two episodes of physical blindness, we have three major instances of spiritual blindness. And Jesus can deal with both. Our passage today, Mark 8, verses 22 to 33, presents a major shift in this book. Starting here, Jesus switches things up a bit. Up until now, he's been sort of crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee, publicly preaching but in parables, publicly doing miracles to all sorts of people from all different backgrounds, from all different areas. Up until now, Jesus 
hasn't actually told anybody explicitly that he's going to die. We're almost halfway through this book, and we have yet to even remotely understand the concept of his death and his resurrection. Jesus' focus now changes to a specific journey, one that ends in Jerusalem, and a specific teaching, educating his disciples about his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. Now, this section is a shift, but it isn't without setup. Last week, we found in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 8 that Jesus is discussing with his disciples, and he says in verse 17, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then in verse 21, you know, completing act one of the book of Mark, he says, Do you not yet understand? So there at the close of act one, Jesus diagnoses his disciples as being spiritually blind. And act two opens up with Jesus healing a blind man. And for the rest of Act 2 through chapter 10, we witness Jesus patiently and gradually addressing his disciples' spiritual blindness. They've been in close connection, walking with Jesus for two years. And Jesus says that they are still spiritually blind. Can we relate to this? How long have you been walking with Jesus? How often do you lament how slowly you're growing, how slowly you're coming to understand exactly what this means. Jesus' most trusted friends, those who would eventually turn the world upside down with their proclamation of the gospel, were also slow learners. So you're not alone. I'm not alone. In our passage today, we learn that the only way to grow as a disciple of Jesus, is to, like this blind man, receive the repeated personal touch of Jesus. And to do that, we'll find that we must confess Jesus personally. We must also yield to his personal priorities. And we must expect him to personally see us through this process to the end. So let's go ahead and read verses 22 to 33 together. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And when Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that when we're done with our service today, we would know you more, that we would know you more closely. Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, remove our spiritual blinders that are keeping us from understanding who you are, what you've done, and how that matters in our lives, how that matters in our day-to-day, week-to-week, Monday through Friday, Saturday, Sunday lives. In Jesus' name. So, here in verses 22 to 26, we have our only instance in the Gospels of a healing of Jesus happening in stages. What is going on here? I mean, Jesus attempts a healing, and then he's like, oh, okay, um, you only see trees walk? Um, I think I could fix that. Hold on a second. And then he sort of tries again, and, and he can, you know, see. Did he have a hard time? This is the only time in the, in the Gospels where it seems like Jesus has a tough time healing somebody. So what is going on here? We've already seen Jesus raise a girl from the dead. Didn't seem to have any problem. It didn't take, you know, a couple attempts. And over and over and over we've seen him heal without issue, right? And so it certainly cannot mean that he had a difficult time. So there must be something else going on here. Why the two-step process? This miracle is an object lesson for the disciples, but also for us as readers. It demonstrates what's coming, that the disciples still have much growing to do in understanding Jesus' mission, that they, they know who he is in theory, as we'll find out, but in practice, they have no idea how this is going to be worked out. Jesus' healing of this blind man actually serves as an outline of Jesus' re-education campaign to his disciples. Peter and the disciples know in part who Jesus is, as we see in verse 29, but it's still a blurry image, as we see in verse 33. They know he's the anointed one of God, as prophesied about in the scriptures, but what that title means for what he's about to do is something they are not currently prepared to accept. So Jesus will spend, from here on out, the rest of his journey to Jerusalem through chapter 10 on his way to die, redefining for them, his disciples, those who would carry the message to the world, what the Christ had come to do. And we'll circle, we'll circle back to this healing in just a minute. So in verse 27, Jesus brings his disciples 25 miles north of Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, 
which is a Roman city with many surrounding villages. And they're sort of walking through the villages. This is pretty far north. It's about as far north of Jerusalem as Jesus goes. And then we'll see him from here on out start heading back toward Jerusalem. So this is where Jesus begins his discipleship educational campaign to really get to his disciples, to really hone their understanding of what is going on. His first task in verse 27 is to proctor a pretest. How many of you have been in a class where the first thing you do is take a pretest to feel terrible about yourself, to understand how much you don't know about the concept that's about to be taught? And the teacher sort of gauges everyone's initial understanding of whatever's being taught, and, and then they can really hit the material hard after that. Jesus here assesses where the disciples are at regarding who he is. But first he asks what everyone else is saying about him. He says in verse 27, Who do people say that I am? What's the regional gossip column saying about me right now? The disciples readily have those answers. And we, the readers, have actually already heard these answers as well. Two chapters ago in chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, it says, Some said John the Baptist, others said Elijah, and others said he is like one of the prophets of old. So this is sort of old news. We already know what's going on. We already know what people think, but Jesus wants to hear it from them. And all three of these answers illustrate an opinion of Jesus that relegates him to a has-been. That he's just more of the same. Maybe he's John the Baptist, a bold and vibrantly outspoken voice raised from the dead. That'd be cool. Maybe he's Elijah, who incidentally never died and was prophesied by Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, that he would return before the great an awesome day of the Lord spoken about throughout the Old Testament. Or maybe he's just one of those other prophets we all know about already, but he's certainly not anything new. There were a lot of opinions clearly about Jesus then, and it's no different now. Most everyone you meet has an opinion about Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's cool and all, but his followers are jerks. He taught that you should love people, never judge them. He wouldn't dare, any, dare call anyone out on their sin. He never claimed to be divine. You name it, someone thinks it. Everyone, a lot of people have opinions about Jesus. But Jesus doesn't stop at asking about what pop culture thinks about him. He probes further. And he asks that the disciples step out with their personal confession of who he is. He asks them to answer their own question that they already asked themselves in chapter 4, verse 41. When after he calmed the storm on the sea, the disciples are struck with fear and say, Who is this guy? And so he says, Yeah, go ahead. I'm waiting. Who am I? Who am I to you? He requires that they step out with a personal confession of who he is. And the same goes for us. 
The question that Jesus asks in verse 29 is central to not only Mark's gospel, but the entire concept of the gospel. Who is Jesus to you? If you're not a Christian today, but are curious about Jesus, this is the question that all the other questions lead to. You must follow your questions to this one question. Who do you say that I am? If you are a Christian today, you also need to continue to answer this question for yourself. Who is Jesus to you? The only way to actually grow in your faith in Jesus, your personal faith in Jesus, is to confess who he is to you. This involves forming an opinion. It involves disagreeing with a lot of people. But if he's the only way, as he claims he is, then this is the only way. Who do you say that Jesus is? If Jesus is your Savior, are you including him in your decision-making? If Jesus is your Lord, are you following him or your own conception of him? If he's your master, does anyone else know that about you? Up until this point, no human has been able to articulate who this person Jesus is. The demons know, and Jesus has spent much time saying, Quiet! Demons, don't give it away. God the Father knows, as we found out in chapter 1, that he's, Jesus is God the Father's beloved Son. But neither the disciples, nor the crowds, nor the religious leaders of Israel have been able to pinpoint who this guy is. That is, until now. Peter, verse 29, being the spokesperson for the disciples, risks it all with the confession. You are the Christ. Ding, ding, ding. You got it right. But Jesus says, shh, not so loud. In verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why does Jesus get all secretive all of a sudden? We have to understand that this term that Peter uses, Christ, which is Greek, or Messiah, which is Hebrew. It carried a ton of baggage to the Jews in Jesus' time. It simply means God's anointed, but in Jesus' time, it mostly conveyed a political revolutionary, one the Jews assumed would bring them justice and a solid good riddance to the Roman occupation. Jesus actually won't publicly claim this title of Christ until chapter 14, when he is asked point-blank by the high priest while he's being tried. So yes, Peter is right. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But Jesus immediately begins to clarify to his disciples and Peter what this actually means. Because they have much of the same cultural baggage associated with that term as everyone else does. And so after Jesus commands secrecy, in verse 31, he begins to teach them what the Son of Man must suffer in order to accomplish his mission. Notice he doesn't adopt that, the title of Christ that Peter just confessed. Instead, he adopts uh, the title, the Son of Man, which is his favorite title for himself. It's the one he uses most often in the Gospels. 
And while this title, Son of Man, does have special significance in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, it did not carry with it the same political baggage as Christ. And so he's more comfortable in that setting to just adopt that title. In taking on this title as well, he is also identifying himself with us. He is the eternal Son of God. But now, he is completely human. He's not just the Son of God of eternity. He is now a genuine Son of man. Like Paul describes in his letter to the Philippian church, Jesus fully divested his divine privileges in order to fully take on humanity. He remains fully God, but now he is also fully human, a son of man. Now this is the first of, like I said in our Markin's sandwich, this is the first of the three predictions of Jesus' suffering that he makes in this entire section. So he says the entire leadership of Israel rejects Jesus and sends him to his death but after three days he will rise again. And he said this plainly. Not in a parable. He just comes out and says it. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die. Oh, and I'll be alive again after three days. It's amazingly concise. It's actually pretty close to the creed we just read about the first half. But clearly for Peter, in verse 32, is a, it's amazingly opposite to what Peter expects Jesus to do. Peter feels the need to step in, take Jesus aside for a private tutorial, and rebuke Jesus' weird concept of what a Messiah does. Jesus is educating his disciples on exactly what he's about to do and what really he's even doing here. He has come not to bring revolution, but to die. He has come not with judgment, but to suffer. This is how God is working in the world. This is why God became human. This is how he plans to end sin without ending sinners. And Peter, on a high, since he answered the last question correctly, feels that he can and should rebuke Jesus' perception of his own mission. Peter's concept of the Christ's mission was from his immediate cultural context. No, 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 no. That is not how this works, Jesus. Let me fill you in on, on what we're all expecting here, what we're all expecting you to do. And Jesus turns in verse 33 and rebukes Peter in the strongest of terms. He says, Get behind me, Satan. Yikes. Peter was the one who had the genius confession about 30 seconds prior to this, and now Jesus is calling him Satan. What is going on here? Peter steps unknowingly, unwittingly, into the shoes of Satan, the adversary, which is what Satan means. Peter vocalized precisely what Satan wanted Jesus to think about. This isn't really what you have to do. There are easier ways to achieve glory. Being obedient to God the Father, not necessary. But unlike Adam in the garden, Jesus is not fooled. 
So he rebukes Peter, but he explains why. <laughs> he doesn't just leave him hanging with the whole Satan accusation. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. To be mindful of the things of God, we need to get our concept of mission from Jesus. And where did Jesus get his mission? Twice later in this book, Jesus describes how in his suffering, in his death, he is accomplishing what has been written of him. In chapter 9, just you can even look at it right now, chapter 9, verse 12, he says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He submits to the prediction of his suffering that's in Scripture. This meant, as Paul says in Philippians, that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if we actually want to grow as disciples of Jesus, we don't just need to personally confess Jesus. We also must yield to his personal priorities. And his priority was to submit to God the Father's will as revealed in Scripture. Now, what does this mean for our growth as Jesus' disciples? What does it mean to set our minds on the things of God rather than the things of man? Spoiler alert, it's in the next verse. You can look at it. We're not going to get there today, but we lay our lives down for Jesus' sake and the Gospels. That's his application there in verse 34 and 35. We lay our lives down because he laid his life down for us, one, and we lay our lives down because his mission to reconcile humans to God is so much more eternally significant than anything else we could possibly focus on. It means we put his mission above our goals. It means our goals are informed by his mission. It means we put his word above all other voices. It means he gets first dibs on what goes on our calendar. It means we love people enough to show them the gospel with our actions and tell them the gospel with our lips. It means we make Jesus' priorities our priorities, for that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And thankfully, oh, thankfully, he doesn't just leave this to us to figure out how to do that. Which leads us back to our original story of the blind man. Verses 22 to 26. This story of Jesus opening up this chapter, opening up this section of this book, it shows us the heart of Jesus, not only for this man, this one man, but for his disciples and ultimately for us. Verse 22, he, sorry, verse 23, he takes the man by the hand, leads him out of the city for a one-on-one -on -one personal encounter. He then uses physical touch to interact with him in a way that the man can understand. He spits in his broken eyes and lays his hands on them. And interestingly, verse 23, he asks the man for a status report. He says, do you, do you see anything? He invites him to participate in this process. The man says, yeah, 
I can see, but I think those are people, but they look like trees, kind of like tree beard. Does that make sense? Jesus then lays his hands on the man's again, eyes again, and we get a threefold description of the totality of the healing that takes place. Verse 25. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now this story is perfectly placed after Jesus diagnoses his disciples with spiritual blindness at the end of Act 1. Yes, they are blind. And after being with Jesus for so long, they still only see a blurry picture of the reality of who Jesus is and what he's doing. But Jesus is not going to leave them that way. He will patiently teach them again and again and again until they completely understand who he is and what he came to do. Which is necessary because Peter's foot-in-mouth moments don't end here. At the end of the book, at at the end of Jesus' life, Peter says, I never knew that guy. Three times. It isn't until Jesus resurrects from the dead and ascends to heaven does Peter display an articulate knowledge of the truth about Jesus in Acts chapter 2, empowered then by the Holy Spirit. So despite the continued misunderstandings that they will have, Jesus is clear in this completed healing, verse 25, that he will also accomplish the growth that he starts in his disciples. And this is thankfully true of us as well. That to grow as disciples of Jesus, we need not only confess him personally, yield to his priorities, we must expect that Jesus will personally see this through with us till the end. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day day of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. He's not one of of those would-be authors that starts a book and leaves it on his desk for 20 years gathering dust and cobwebs. He is actively authoring your faith. And he will finish it. You can count on that. Maybe you're not a Christian and faith is something that you just don't have and, you're, and you think, like, I'm not really the type of person that can just have faith. What did the blind man have that helped his healing? Nothing. He just received the healing and reported it. If faith is something you want, you can ask for that. For you who are Christians, for us who are Christians today, it's important to know that he will bring it to completion when? At the day of Jesus Christ. Which means this process will be ongoing until either you die or Jesus returns to earth. Only in that day will we see 100% clearly Just like Paul says in Corinthians that right now we see as if in one of those rest stop mirrors, you know, 100 miles south, you get off at a rest stop and the mirror, it's it's not a mirror, it's a sheet of metal. 
and it's been like scratched, so you can't really see anything. It's just, I'm here, I guess. That's how we're seeing right now. But then we're going to see face to face. And until then, right now, tomorrow, Jesus applies his ongoing personal touch to our blindness, to our brokenness, to our need. He takes us by the hand, leads us out of the noise into one-on-one relationship. And he does his work in us and through us. Now, this is a person worth confessing. This is a person worth yielding to. This is a person who is trustworthy to finish the work because of what he's already done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the author and finisher of our faith. We want to grow. We want to follow you. We want to know more about you. We want to learn of you, which is what disciple means, a learner of the person who we are following. Lord, there's so much to learn. You are so good. You perfectly strike every balance of grace and truth, of love, and we just don't know how to do that. But thank you that you know that about us. You know that about us, and all you ask is that we know that about ourselves, that we need you, that we can expect you to do that work. For those of us who, who don't have that faith, Father, I pray that you'd grant them faith. For the rest of us, Lord, I, I ask that you'd help us to know our need more, more clearly so that we know the person who can meet that need. Bless us, Lord, as we worship together, as we fellowship together, as we take communion together, as we receive prayer, as we hang out, as we enjoy this beautiful weather you've given us. Help us to walk with you and with each other in this process of discipleship, of learning of you. In Jesus' name, amen.